0: Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. With the climate crisis upon us, there's renewed interest in new nuclear power reactors. We're taking a deep dive into the merits of these reactors on today's episode. How do we solve climate change? Ask 100 people and you'll get 100 answers. And if one of the people you ask is Bill Gates you might hear that we should turn to nuclear energy to help us reach our climate goals. But while generating nuclear power doesn't create carbon emissions, it does come with a host of other challenges, like affordability, safety, and the unsolved question of how to safely dispose of nuclear waste. Almost every nuclear reactor operating today is what's known as a light water reactor, because they use ordinary water to cool their hot radioactive core. To try and solve the biggest challenges of nuclear energy, the industry is turning away from light water reactors and looking toward new designs that use other materials to cool the core. The industry calls these new designs, quote-unquote, advanced reactors, and claims they'll help us build a clean energy future that's also safe and affordable. So are these claims accurate? Today's guest is Dr. Edwin Lyman, a physicist and director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He just released the report, Advanced Isn't Always Better, an independent review of these new designs that cuts through the hype coming from the nuclear industry. Ed wants to make sure we don't waste money designing and building reactors that aren't safe and don't improve on what we already have. He explains how today's nuclear reactors work, what's different about so-called advanced reactors, and whether or not they deliver on the benefits they promise. Ed also tells us about the natrium reactor being designed by Bill Gates' company, TerraPower, and what he'd say to Bill Gates if they met at a dinner party. Ed, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: So... We've talked in the past about small modular reactors, the Chernobyl disaster, and today I want to dig into non-light water reactors. You just published a technical analysis looking at the safety, security, and environmental impacts of this proposed new suite of nuclear reactors. First off, how are they different from the nuclear reactors that the U.S. currently operates?
1: Sure. So uh, the US currently has 94 nuclear reactors to produce electrical power, and they all use ordinary water as a coolant to remove heat from the hot fuel, to convey that heat to a power generation system, which uh, generates steam and, and produces electricity. These reactors have a main characteristic is they don't use water to cool the fuel, but they use other substances. For instance, you can use a liquid metal like liquid sodium as a coolant, or you can use a gas like helium, or in some cases, the fuel cools itself as a liquid and cools itself.
0: So can you run through the the new advanced reactors that you evaluated?
1: Yes, the first main class of reactors is called um, fast reactors. And these differ from our existing fleet, because they don't have materials that slow down neutrons. So when a nucleus of uranium fuel is fissioned, it's struck by a neutron and it's split apart and it releases energy and other neutrons. And those other neutrons will then strike other uranium nuclei. And you have what's called a chain reaction. And that generates a a steady level of heat, which can then be used to produce electricity. That's how nuclear reactors work. But in uh, the water-cooled reactors that we have now, those water molecules actually slow down the neutrons. So when a neutron is produced by fission, it has a certain energy, but as it collides with water molecules, it slows down. And it turns out that makes it, essentially that makes the fission reactions more efficient. So you can use less uh, concentrated fuel. So uh, that, that's a certain approach to designing a nuclear reactor that's, that we use today. But in a fast reactor, you don't have a material that slows down those neutrons, so they remain high energy. And that has different properties than light water reactors. In fact, some of the advantages that the developers of these reactors claim stems from this property of having fast neutrons. And in order to do that, you need a coolant other than water. You need something that won't actually slow down those neutrons, and so that's why a substance like liquid sodium is used to cool those those reactors. Then um, there's another category, which is called high-temperature gas-cooled reactors, and as the name suggests, they don't use water to cool the fuel, but they use a high-pressure gas, uh, most commonly helium, which you pump through the reactor vessel, and the gas will then be. Pumped out after it's heated up and then used again to boil water and produce electricity. The third category is a much different type of reactor than the others, and that's a molten salt fueled reactor. And the reactors that we use today use a solid material as the fuel, which is something that's desirable. You have a solid material surrounded by a metal cladding. But in a molten salt fueled reactor, the fuel itself is a liquid. It's a a hot molten salt where the uranium and other fuel materials are dissolved in that fuel. And again, that has, according to the proponents of that technology, that gives you certain advantages over solid fuel reactors, but it also has quite a few disadvantages that we can talk about.
0: How long have these types of reactors been studied?
1: These reactors, by and large, are very old technologies. So people often call them advanced reactors, but um, because that's not really an accurate characterization, we don't really use that in in our report. In fact, some of these reactor designs were conceived before uh, the light water reactor that we use today in the United States. So they, they date, you know, from the days of the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, and uh, some of these technologies were actually attempted as early as the, as the 1950s, both in the U.S. and other parts of the world.
0: Ed, I know from reading the report that each of these reactor types has their problems. Let's narrow down fast reactors for our audience. What, what do proponents say about them?
1: So, again, the, the benefit of a fast reactor is primarily the, the dream Uh, for which it was first conceived. Because of the special properties of fast neutrons, the fast reactor, in theory, could operate in a mode where it could generate not only its own fuel, but actually produce a little extra fuel for another reactor. And so this is what's called a fast breeder reactor. And this is one of the reasons why the Manhattan Project scientists, who may have had too much time on their hands uh, at one point, dreamed of this reactor they thought it would be a way to fuel nuclear power forever without having to use uranium resources, which they thought had to be safe for nuclear weapons because it was thought uranium was a very rare commodity at the dawn of the nuclear age and that the U.S. would need all it could get for nuclear weapons. So if you had a reactor that could actually breed its own fuel, you wouldn't have to compete with that. And the other potential advantage of a fast reactor is that it has the ability to actually utilize other types of fuels efficiently, in particular some of the materials in the spent nuclear fuel from current reactors, which uh, has a very long half-life, that means it persists in the environment for tens or hundreds of thousands of years. That kind of material is not utilized very efficiently in current reactors. But a fast reactor could actually convert more of that to energy. So sometimes fast reactors are called burner reactors, and their proponents tout them as being able to burn spent fuel to take existing spent fuel and essentially destroy it or recycle it. These are the terms that you hear.
0: So, what are some of the problems with fast reactors?
1: Uh, first of all, it's not doesn't really live up to its height in a real system. So uh, yes, in theory, a fast reactor could operate as a breeder or a burner, uh, but what I discuss in my report is that if you look at real systems and a real electricity system and how these reactors actually work, it would take a very, very long time to make a dent, let's say, in the spent nuclear fuel stockpile we have now, or it would take a very long time to actually breed fuel in a way that you could say you're being more efficient than the current system. So uh, it's not really realistic to claim that these reactors can burn spent fuel or to breed new plutonium in an effective way. So the benefits aren't that great, but the risks are very significant because in either one of those cases, a breeder reactor or a burner reactor, you also need to reprocess spent fuel to produce that new fuel for the reactor. And reprocessing is a technology where you take nuclear waste, spent nuclear fuel, and you put it through a chemical process to extract the materials that you want to use in new fuel, primarily plutonium, and uh, separate that from other radioactive wastes that you can't recycle in a reactor. And the problem with doing that is that plutonium Uh, in addition to being a potential nuclear fuel, is also a nuclear weapons material. So when you separate it from spent nuclear fuel, you're essentially making it easier for a country or a terrorist group that wants to acquire nuclear weapons. It makes it easier to get that material. And so therefore, any nuclear power system that uses reprocessing uh, is inherently more dangerous from a nuclear proliferation perspective than the system we have now, which is operating light-water reactors without reprocessing the spent fuel. In addition, fast reactors have uh, serious safety issues which the proponents uh, like to gloss over. For instance, we were all familiar with Chernobyl, and we discussed that in our previous podcast. One of the main initiators of the Chernobyl disaster was the reactor had a design flaw where under certain circumstances, if the reactor heats up, it actually undergoes a positive feedback. So the hotter it gets, the more power it produces, and you have essentially what's called a, a massive power excursion that led to explosion in the reactor. That's something you don't want to have in your nuclear reactor. In fact, the light water reactors in the U.S. today have uh, the opposite behavior, is that if the reactor heats up, the nuclear reaction tends to shut down. But fast reactors typically are more like Chernobyl in that if they heat up and that liquid sodium coolant starts to boil, then you actually get more and more fission So the power of the reactor can increase by a factor of 100 in a matter of seconds. And so you have a situation where you you can have, again, a core uh, meltdown or even an explosion. So uh, it's that instability uh, that I worry about with regard to safety.
0: So, Ed, are these fast reactors, are they just theories or have, have any of them been built or any pieces of them built to do actual testing?
1: Yes, yeah, so, uh, fast reactors, there's been a fascination with them in the U.S. and other countries. So, uh, there actually first fast reactor was built back in 1951 here in the United States. And there have been a number of demonstration and test fast reactors in the U.S., in the Soviet Union, and now Russia, in the United Kingdom, in France, in Japan, in India, where most of them are located, and the the actual record with these reactors has been extremely mixed. One problem with using liquid sodium, as any mischievous high school student who's ever tried this uh, can tell you, is that it doesn't, that sodium metal doesn't play very well with water. In fact, uh, if it comes in contact with water or air, it can actually catch fire. So you're using a potentially flammable coolant in your nuclear reactor. And so the developers have to put in all sorts of extra safety systems to make sure they can detect if there's a sodium leak that could actually lead to a fire. In fact, this is really one of the biggest issues that have affected the reliability of fast reactors around the world. But the, the reactors, by and large, have not been demonstrated on the scale and using the same fuel and safety systems that are being proposed for the generation of fast reactors that are being talked about to be built today.
0: We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you're enjoying Got Science, we've got another podcast you might like, The Longest Year, a mini series from the PBS NewsHour podcast, America Interrupted. Through the voices of people across the country, America Interrupted, The Longest Year, is the story of the challenges, uncertainty, and loss we've faced one year into the pandemic and where we go from here. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to our interview. So I, I'm assuming with the climate crisis upon us, could the potential risks justify the enormous public and private investments needed to get them up and running?
1: Well, that's that's one of the fundamental questions here is um, obviously we're facing this potentially devastating climate crisis. And we need to evaluate every possible tool that could help us to deeply decarbonize the uh, the energy sector as rapidly as possible. So nuclear, overall, nuclear power is a potential option uh, for doing that. But that doesn't mean nuclear power should just be given the benefit of the doubt. in any cockamamie idea that someone comes up with is something that uh, the federal government investors should throw billions of dollars at because it will take many billions of dollars and probably a couple of decades at least before any new reactor design could be actually commercialized and have a hope of being safe and reliable. So w- one of the reasons why I pursued this report is to examine some of the claims that are being made about these reactors. Because if, if there's no real benefit to pursuing it radically different type of reactor design than the one we have now, then if if there's no real benefit, then those investments wouldn't be justified. So I think it's very important for the public debate to make sure that they know what the facts are and where claims are being made, what the actual subtleties or caveats or fundamental truth about those technologies is, is being discussed. And so people are not misled into supporting very speculative reactor designs that are essentially high risk, but high risk, low benefit technology.
0: Well, you know, Ed, you're making me think of Bill Gates, who he's touting these technologies as a promising solution for meeting our climate targets. And, you know, he, he's a successful guy. He has a lot of power to persuade. I mean, if, if I set up a dinner party for the two of you, what, what would you want to talk to him about?
1: Yeah, so I'd want to tell Bill Gates that he really needs to go beyond what his advisors may be telling him. Sure, he's obviously a very successful person and, and not an idiot. But in uh, when he talks about nuclear power, he really demonstrates that there's some gaps in his understanding. And I, I get the feeling that he has not done an independent review for himself of the projects that, that he's funding, in particular through a company called TerraPower, which gates founded and uh, which he's the chief investor in uh, this company is developing a sodium cooled fast reactor called the natrium and this is moving forward uh, because the department of energy selected the natrium design as one of two that will be part of what's called the advanced reactor demonstration program which is created by congress in 2019 as a public private partnership to build two advanced demonstration reactors by 2027. That's the very aggressive goal. And um, The natrium reactor won one of those awards, so they are pursuing building a demonstration reactor. But again, the sodium-cooled-fast reactor, as I described, has a lot of liabilities and not a whole lot of benefit. In fact, the natrium itself, because of the fuel it's going to use has even less benefit than a fast reactor would in theory. Because again, one of the real only advantages to taking on the additional risks associated with a fast reactor is you could get this benefit of breeding plutonium, expanding or um, producing your own fuel and reducing the need for actual mined uranium. But in the case of the natrium, it turns out it would probably take two to three times more uranium to generate a kilowatt hour of power from that reactor than from current light water reactors. So uh, it would actually be less uranium efficient than current reactors. So why would you invest billions of dollars in developing technology when it doesn't even meet that basic test of uh, having the benefit uh, that you thought it would have?
0: So one of the goals of your report is to provide the technical analysis so that policy decisions that are being made are well informed. What are some of the recommendations that you make in the report?
1: One of the primary recommendations is that the uh, Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program I just mentioned, with the goal of building two commercial reactors that would be connected to the grid and, and generate power, by 2027, that that program actually be suspended because I don't think that the safety data is available yet to support that kind of deployment. It's possible these one or both of these reactors will be built at ordinary utility sites. Uh, the utility is going to expect that the reactor will, will operate at full capacity without uh, significant reliability problems. So. In order to have a reactor like that, essentially a commercial reactor that's ready to generate commercial power, you need to have a basis for licensing that reactor in that mode and also a, a enough technical information to be able to understand the problems with operating it and to operate reliably. And I do not believe that the existing record is there to support those safety analyses. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the uh, regulator of nuclear power plants in the United States, will have to license those reactors. And they're going to be faced with the question of whether they should license a commercial-sized reactor uh, based on the spotty safety database that exists. In the past, the NRC has said, well, if you want to build a new reactor type uh, that hasn't operated commercially, um, in order for us to license it, you're going to need to probably build a prototype and to run that either a smaller scale or, or full scale. But you run in a mode that's not for generating power, but for doing safety testing, for qualifying fuel, which is always a very important safety measure to make sure that your fuel is safe under the conditions that it will be used and other critical testing to support licensing that commercial reactor. And so I feel like they've skipped this development step, and the NRC doesn't have the informational need to really make a safety finding uh, to license these demonstration reactors. So I've argued that the program should be slowed down, that the NRC should have the opportunity to. Consider what additional data it'll need to license those large reactors, and which would most likely involve building a prototype where, because you're going to be using it for safety testing to address uncertainties in the safety of the design, you're going to want to have additional features that may not be in the the commercial reactor. For instance, uh, many of these reactor designs uh, don't include a conventional containment. Uh, the nuclear reactors we have operating today in the U.S. have uh, reinforced concrete containment structures, which are designed to prevent leakage of radiation in the event of an accident, and even in the event of an explosion, uh, like what we saw at uh, Fukushima Daiichi in 2011, that they would provide some protection against, against that. But a number of these reactors won't have any real containment at all because the developers argue that the reactors are so safe they won't need one. But that is a statement that really has to be verified. And so you would want to use a prototype to test certain scenarios, but because you don't know how they're going to play out, you would want that prototype to have a containment even if the uh, commercial design doesn't have one. So the prototypes could look a lot different than the designs that are being pursued under this program, and I've argued to slow it down. Another conclusion is that I don't think there is due diligence when the Department of Energy has awarded these demonstration project awards. I'm not confident that the process is really examining whether these reactors have all the benefits they claim they do, and I, I think there has to be a better vetting of reactor designs before Billions of dollars of public money is committed to these reactors because we don't want to subsidize the development of unsafe reactors.
0: If nuclear power needs to be part of the climate solution, why not continue to use what we have? I I understand the reactors that we have are aging out, but why not either shore those up or use the same design that we currently have where we wouldn't have to go through uh, the lengthy and costly development phase.
1: Yes, that is uh, that is the baseline we have is the operating light-water reactor fleet as well as what are called the evolutionary design changes that is building off that experience and trying to do better but having the same fundamental design using the um, water as a coolant. And without having to take a position on what the role of nuclear power should be in deep decarbonization, you can ask the question, are these advanced reactors better? Or if you're going to invest Tens of billions of dollars in new nuclear reactor designs. Would it make more sense to focus on the existing technologies and how to improve them with respect to safety and cost? So, so that's really the, uh, the baseline. And what i the uh, the operating reactor fleet has its problems, and you know we've seen. What happened to Fukushima Daiichi uh, at a light water reactor? They clearly are susceptible to corn melt accidents, especially in the event of a a severe earthquake or flood. And so they've been somehow discredited in the eye of the public. And also, they're costly. The current fleet in some parts of the United States... Nuclear power is no longer economical because not only uh, natural gas is cheaper, but also wind and solar is cheaper than nuclear power under certain conditions. And so a number of operating plants are not economic anymore. And as far as new plants go, those have turned out to be extremely cost prohibitive. And so the only two nuclear reactors under construction in the United States right now in the state of Georgia are running at um, uh, twice the original estimated cost up to i think now 28 billion dollars for that project and they're taking twice as long at least as originally planned so the light water reactors lost some credibility and i feel like that's what's driving the messaging from the nuclear industry today is they feel like they have to show the public they have something different and they can do better uh, with something different and um but the, the problem is that this we're not talking about messaging here. We're trying to win public hearts and minds. It's not what needs to be done. What needs to be done is to address these fundamental safety and cost issues of nuclear power. And just doing something different for the sake of the fact that it's different is not necessarily the best approach.
0: Well, nuclear power is certainly a subject that is fraught, and I appreciate your expertise and and the clarity that you bring to the issue. Ed, thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to Jiayu Liang who's been an integral part of the podcast team for the past two years. She's moving on to her next adventure, and we wish her the best and hope she won't be a stranger. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Edwin Lyman. Science for the Win was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes. And I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe, wear your masks, get a vaccine, and see you next time.